You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Bibles to Philemon, the shortest book in the New Testament. We're going to take a look at that today. I hope to uh, have the new sermon schedule out for you this week. Uh, we're going to be going through the book of Malachi in the weeks ahead. We're also going to be going through First and Second Thessalonians uh, over the summer and into, uh, into the fall. Today we're going to be in the book of Philemon. Only 335 Greek words. Uh, makes up this small letter, and uh, it don't let the the size of the letter uh, fool you into thinking that there's not much to be gleaned here. I hope to, if you have that opinion, I hope to change that by the time we get done. Heard about a uh, letter that was written from one neighbor to another, and the le- the letter goes something like this: it "says Dear Frank, uh, we've been neighbors for six tumultuous years." When you borrowed my tiller, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted rap music. And when your dog went to the bathroom all over my lawn, you laughed. I could go on, but I'm certainly not one to hold grudges. So I'm writing this letter to tell you that your house is on fire. Cordially, Bob. I think his attitude was in the right place. So this letter that Paul writes to a man by the name of Philemon, the reason that he writes this letter is because of another individual that is revealed in this letter has come to Paul, and Paul has been spending time with him. And I want to ask you a question. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand, and I don't want you to kind of acknowledge this out loud because, well, I don't want you to be embarrassed, but I think think the answer to this question I think we know what the answer is. Would you agree that holding on to a grudge is something that we find secretly kind of satisfying? Now, now we're, Christian folks are not going to say that on the front end because we, you know, we put a mask on and we hide behind that mask, and we're not going to just openly say in front of people that I'm holding a grudge and I'm kind of enjoying it. We wouldn't say that because, well, we wouldn't want any bad attention on us. But the fact of the matter is we... When we've been offended, uh, we tend to hold on to those things a little bit. And the reason we hold on to them, there's many reasons, but the one reason I want to kind of focus in on today is that when we hold on to that grudge and we hold on to that hurt, we're secretly hoping that one day we can take that hurt and we can take that pain and turn that into something where we hurt the person who's offended us. We secretly hope that one day we're going to get revenge and that that we hope to see that person who offended us hurt at least as bad as we've hurt, but we would prefer that they would hurt worse. When we hold on to a grudge, the reason we hold on to it is because ultimately we want revenge. We want pain to be inflicted on the other person. Let me give you some words that are similar to the word grudge. It's easy easy to use the word grudge and not really think much about it. But let me give you some words that kind of mean the same thing that I got out of the thesaurus. Resentment, grievance, spite, 
jealousy, hatred, malice. When we look on the world stage today, we find a lot of grudge holding. We find a lot of resentment. We find a lot of anger. It's being played out on every news show that's been on all morning long. They bring in the experts. They all sit down around a table. They get interviewed, but the interview turns into usually a hate session on the person across the aisle, the one who holds a different perspective from them. And it just turns into a, a resentment-filled, malice-filled, and almost hatred-filled tirade. And if you're listening to that day in and day out, it will not encourage you to make right the offense. What it will do is it will encourage you to hold on to the grudge, hold on to the anger, hold on to the malice, and any opportunity you get to spill that stuff out in front of other people, you will do it. Because secretly, we'll hold on to our grudge. This letter that we're looking at, even though it's short, Paul has stepped in, and he's trying to be a mediator between two people who are at at odds. And what we find in this book and what we find in this letter is Paul trying to find a place where two people can reconcile together out of love, mutual love, not only for Paul, but for one another. I read a story about a man who held a grudge for 50 years. When he was 14 years old, he and his best friend were on a sports team together at their high school. They were 14, and in, in the locker room after a game, this best friend makes fun of his other friend, or his best friend makes fun in front of him, in front of the entire team and in front of the coaches. And in that moment, the whole team and the coaches and everything burst out in laughing over this kid that this guy was making fun of, and they were best friends. Well, on that day, the fr friendship ended. On that day... The one who was offended took a grudge and held on to that thing for years. And that grudge turned into resentment. That resentment turned into to hatred. Years would pass. These two 14-year-olds would grow up. One, the one who caused the offense or caused the hurt, would go to college, would be a, a college sports uh, phenom and would, would just do amazing things and would come back to that hometown and become a coach at this same school while the other one who was hurt would go on with his life, get a degree, and serve in his hometown as a businessman. But he never got over that pain. He never got over that hurt in that moment in that locker room when he was embarrassed. And this thing would fester over years. And after many years, after this man who had been hurt, had been married for 44 years, he finally gets up one day and says, this has to end. And instead of going to this man and trying to reconcile the brokenness, he goes to this man's house, knocks on his door, and when this man opens the door, he pulls out a gun and kills him on the man's front porch in front of his wife. Fifty years of hatred ends in cold-blooded murder. When he was arrested, he admitted exactly what he did. And in the courtroom, he said that, in his subconscious, inside of him for all of these years, although he's functioned as a businessman, as a husband, had children, but inside of him, he never got over that moment in that locker room when he was 14 years old, and he admitted freely that he committed murder, and they sentenced him to a life sentence. So what we're going to discuss this morning, when we use the term grudge, don't think of it as just some kind of spat between two teenagers. No, I would imagine that in this room right now, you're holding on to some things 
And the reason you're holding on to them is because you're seeking revenge. Paul writes this letter to Philemon. Philemon and his wife and his son had started a church in the community of Colossae. Now, now Paul never visited Colossae. He never, he never started a church in Colossae. He wrote a letter. That's the letter we have to the church at Colossae, better known as Colossians. But he never actually visited that area. I believe, and what I can figure out, is that Paul had a connection with Philemon probably in Ephesus. Ephesus was less than 100 miles from Colossae. From what I can tell, more than likely, Paul influenced Philemon and influenced him and maybe even saw him come to faith in Christ. Philemon goes back to Colossae and his wife and his son start a church in his son's house. And notice how Paul talks to Philemon in verse 4. He says, I thank God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of your faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith. Now, some translations will say the fellowship of the faith. That is a better way to translate this. That word fellowship means koinonia. It's a, it's a, it's a Greek word that, that means that we're in fellowship, in union with one another, and that we do life together. And what unites us together is the love of Christ. So he says to Philemon, he says, because of the koinonia or the fellowship or the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of, of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. In other words, this church that was meeting in Philemon's son's home was being very effective. They were being very effective in unity and in love and in grace and in mercy. But there's one thing you need to know about Philemon that, that I haven't mentioned up until this point. Philemon was apparently a wealthy man. And in Paul's day, wealthy people often had slaves. And Paul is writing to Philemon, who not only is a church leader, who not only has been effective with the gospel, who's not only been effective in this area called Colossae, he's also a man who owns slaves. Now, before we can even move forward, the very moment that I use the word slave or slavery, you immediately draw upon history of our own country. You immediately begin to think of slavery and what happened here in our America for much of our history. And you begin to think about slavery in that context. But I want to make sure you understand, the slavery in Paul's context is not exactly the same. The slavery in Paul's day had nothing to do with ethnicity or race. It had to do with a man who maybe enslaved another man, either by a mutual agreement or because of some unsettled debt. Uh, the culture of the day required that by the time a person got to be 30 years old, they had the option to be set free from their slavery. Now, that's not to say that in Paul's day that slaves were not mistreated. They certainly were. It's not to say that there were slave owners who were horrible people. But the slavery and what we know about in our U.S. history is not the same type slavery that Paul is talking about here. There's some similarities, but there's some great differences. So Paul writes to Philemon. And what he's writing the letter for is for them, for, for Philemon and this slave, and his name is Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave in Philemon's household. And something happened. There was some kind of disagreement. Apparently, Onesimus did something wrong, and he had to flee away from Philemon. Now, the law of the day required or, or could require that Philemon track him down and punish him harshly. And in some areas of Roman culture, he could have even put Onesimus to death for fleeing and running away. 
But somewhere along the journey, Onesimus comes in contact with Paul. Now, I think that Onesimus knew the Apostle Paul. I think he had heard about the Apostle Paul from Philemon and from the household. And when Onesimus runs away, for whatever reason he ran away, something happened. He did something wrong. It was pretty serious. Onesimus finds his way to Paul, who is in prison. Some say that Paul was in prison in Rome at this point. Possibly. That would have been a long way for Onesimus to travel, but it's possible. It could have been when he was in prison in Ephesus, in that area. He was in prison there for a while. It could have been at that point. Nonetheless, Onesimus makes his way to Paul. and has a long relationship with Paul. We don't know how long Onesimus stayed with Paul, but what we do know is that Onesimus served Paul in his imprisonment. So what I want to take a look at today is I want to take a look at some steps that we can take to be able to reconcile with the person who's offended you. Maybe, maybe you're the one who was offended. Maybe you're the one who has the deep hurt. Maybe you're the one that was done wrong. Or, or maybe, maybe you're the offender. Maybe you're the one who did the wrong thing. One thing that binds all of us together in this room is the fact that we're all still broken people. For some in this room, you've never come to faith in Christ. You still have not given your heart and life to Christ. And as a result, you're still living under the pain and the guilt and the shame of all of your sin. What, you, what you've got to understand is, is the type of love that we're going to talk about that is expressed in this letter. You cannot even begin to express that kind of love until you've received the love of Christ by surrendering yourself by faith to Jesus Christ. Until that relationship is made correct, every other relationship you have will be broken. Your marriage relationship, your relationship to your children, relationship to your employer, relationship to your co-workers, until you're right with Christ. What I'm getting ready to talk about, what Paul expresses in this letter, that love, that unconditional love to be able to reconcile with someone else, that's going to be foreign to you because you're still spiritually dead. For those of you who are disciples of Christ, we want to take a look at some steps that we have to take as followers of Christ. And the first one I want to bring to your attention is we've got to break the ice. Notice what Paul says in verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Now remember, when we read a letter of Paul's, it's almost like we're listening in on half of a conversation. Paul is fully aware of what happened in this situation, and when he writes to Philemon, he's writing with some assumptions involved. So when we read a letter of Paul's, we're hearing one side of a conversation, and it's hard to determine exactly what happened in the situation because Paul doesn't tell us. But what we know is that Paul says to Philemon, listen, I have authority as an apostle to say to you, Philemon, do the right thing and do it now. Paul says, Philemon, I could just command you to do this, but I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do, Philemon, is I'm going to appeal to love. I'm going to appeal to you as a disciple of Christ that you do the right thing for love's sake. Now, as Philemon, as a disciple of Christ, and as you as a disciple of Christ, you have experienced incredible, amazing love and grace in your life. That the moment you came to faith in Christ and the moment that God justified you and took all of that sin and all of that shame and He took it away from you and He cast it as far as the east is from the west, in that moment you experienced the incredible, amazing, beautiful love of God. 
So what Paul is doing when he writes to Philemon, he says, now Philemon, I'm going to write to you and I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to be incredibly difficult, but I'm going to ask it on the basis of love, the love that you've experienced when you came to faith in Christ. Paul's trying to soften the blow. Now remember, Philemon had no idea where Onesimus was. He just disappeared. He, he, he left Philemon holding the bag, whatever that was. Whatever problem he had caused and whatever the situation was, Philemon was kind of just left, didn't know where he was, probably in his own anger. Didn't know where Onesimus was until he receives this letter from Paul. So read this letter the way Philemon would have read it. And by the time we get to verse 8, Philemon's kind of been built up by Paul. Paul's saying, man, we're in a love relationship. I love you. I'm, I'm glad to hear what's going on in your household. Uh, but there's something I need to make a request of you to do. He says, yet for love's sake, I, I appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you, and here it is, for my child Onesimus. Now, we also have indication that Onesimus actually delivered this letter to Philemon, possibly delivered, delivered the letter to the church at Colossae as well. So imagine Philemon, as he's reading this letter, maybe he didn't see Onesimus come into town. Maybe somebody delivered the letter, and, and Philemon is sitting in his office, and he's reading. He hasn't even thought about Onesimus. And then Paul says, hey, Philemon, I've got an appeal for you. I really need you to do something out of love. I need you to consider my child Onesimus. Let me ask you a question. When someone mentions the name of the person who hurt you, what wells up inside of you? When you're in conversation, maybe with your family, and somebody brings up the name of that person, you know who that person is, that one who caused you such pain, and everyone else doesn't know about the pain you've went through. They don't know about the hurt. They don't know if anybody, and all these people are sitting around, and they're talking about what a great person this man or woman is. And what happens on the inside of you in that moment? Do you go into character assassination mode? Are you having a conversation on the inside of yourself about how horrible this person is? You know what Paul says here? Paul says to Philemon, Philemon, it's time to break the ice. It's time for somebody to make a step. It's time for somebody to step in and say, okay, we've been suffering under this hurt long enough. And as Christian brothers and sisters, somebody's got to make a step towards reconciliation. It could be that the offender needs to make a step and make this right. It could be that the one who's offended needs to make the step. Here's, a, here's an amazing thing that I've learned down through the years. That that person who offended you, they may not even know that they've ever offended you. Did you know that? You, you've, been, you've been seething with his anger for so long You've been holding on to this grudge for so long against this other person. And this other, this other person has moved on with their life. They have no idea that they ever hurt you. So maybe it's time for the offended to step in and say, you know what? It's time to work towards reconciliation. In reconciliation, somebody's got to be the catalyst. Somebody's got to step forward. Somebody's got to move towards the middle here. And with reconciliation, it takes two people to reconcile. It takes two people to come together, one the offended and one the offender, and deal with the issue. And as Christian brothers in Christ, we are commanded to do that. We don't have an option as disciples of Jesus Christ. We must 
break the ice. We must take the step. We must move towards reconciliation. Paul is going to ask for Onesimus to go back to Philemon. Now imagine with Onesimus. Listen, he knows he's done wrong. He knows he's done the wrong thing. That's why he ran away. But something happened between him and Paul. You know what it was? Onesimus come to faith in Christ under Paul's leadership. Now everything has changed. Whereas Onesimus is a lost man, could have continued on with his life, never even worrying about going back to face Philemon. But now, as a disciple of Christ, Paul says, I'm going to appeal on behalf of love's sake that you two men get together and you work this out. And Onesimus, I'm sending you back. Imagine that conversation, if you will. Paul looks at Onesimus, after he, maybe after he comes to faith in Christ, and he says to Onesimus, now Onesimus, you know what's hanging over your head. You know it's been hanging here for a long time. And Onesimus, you're going to have to go back at some point. You're going to have to face the music. You're going to have to go back and make things right. Somebody's got to break the ice. Somebody's got to move, move ahead. And shouldn't that be the born-again believer who's experienced the grace of God? Listen, God pursued you in reconciliation. God came looking for you. He initiated it. He was the one that made all the preparations, even in eternity past, to reconcile a lost humanity to himself. And what God asks of us as a disciple of Christ is to do exactly the same thing with those we've wronged or who's wronged us. You see, we don't really have an option. And what's amazing about this is Paul's going to be the catalyst. Well, maybe if you're not the offended and you're not the offender, maybe you're going to be the catalyst. That's a hard place to be, folks. (laughs) I try to be that week after week after week here at this church. I, I, tr- I try my best. I don't do a good job of it sometimes. I'll be honest with you. But I've got two people at war. And, and, I, and I'll be asked or I'll, I'll take the initiative to step in and try to be a mediator between two groups of people that are in absolute war with one another. And I try to share God's Word and I try to just show the folks who are at war, who are unreconciled, that, that God is calling us as disciples to deal with this and make it right. Did you know that that married couples can live in their home as though they're roommates? That, that day that they stood before God and man, wherever it was, whether it was at the justice or peace or in front of a, a large group of people in a church somewhere and professed their love for one another, they'll be together till death parts them. That it's going to be a sacrificial type of love that over time, because of hurt and pain and things that's done wrong and lack of reconciliation, that you have two people who are just passing in the halls. They're roommates. There's no more intimacy, no more caring, no more love. We're just getting by, maybe for the half of the kids' sake. But it's grown cold and, and indifferent. Somebody's got to take the step. Somebody's got to step into the middle and say, look, it's time to reconcile. And for the Christian, for the one who follows Christ, you have been the recipient of incredible grace and incredible mercy and incredible love. And you are the one that must initiate that reconciliation, whether you're the offender or the offended. So not only do we need to break the ice, but we're going to have to bury the hatchet. You know what it means? You ever heard heard the term bury the hatchet? You know where that comes from? It comes from Native American tribes when they were in war with one another. And they they come to a place where they're going to have a peace agreement. 
that, that part of that peace agreement is that they would go out in a field after they'd agreed to peace and they would take a hatchet, bur- dig a hole and bury that hatchet in the ground, signifying that they're no longer going to kill each other and no longer going to be at war. In other words, they're now at peace. Well, if we're going to break the ice, the next step is, is we must bury the hatchet. In other words, we must get to a place of forgiveness. Notice what Paul says here. He said, I would have been glad to have kept him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. He says, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. Paul Paul is doing a great job here in writing to Philemon to kind of lay the groundwork for a reconciliation. He says to Philemon, he says, man, Onesimus has come to faith in Christ and he is doing a phenomenal job in serving me in my imprisonment. And and I I would love just to be able to keep him with me, but I know that wouldn't be right. I know that would cause even more problems. So I'm going to send him back to you so that you two will work this thing out and get this done and that you will do it out of love, not out of compulsion, not because I'm commanding you to do it, but you'll do it for the right reasons. And that is because both of you are brothers in Christ. Now notice this. Notice this fellowship of faith or this koinonia between these three men. You have Paul the missionary. You have Philemon who is the church leader in Colossae. And then you have Onesimus who's a slave. You couldn't have three more different individuals from different backgrounds, but yet what binds them all three together? The koinonia, the fellowship of the faith, the the love they have for Christ and the love that they've experienced from Christ. And Paul operates from that position. You men must sit down, you must break the ice, and you must bury the hatchet and get to a place of reconciliation. He says right here, he says, for this perhaps, verse 15 is an amazing verse, Paul says, for this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. That, that verse puzzled me for a little while until I began to see it from Paul's perspective. Paul saw this whole entire blow up as an opportunity for Onesimus to come to faith in Christ. In other words, whatever happened between Philemon and Onesimus that drove him away God used that to bring Onesimus to faith so that then reconciliation between this master and slave could happen. Paul says, I recognize that he was parted from you for a while and that this is all going to work out. Verse 16, I think this is the key verse in the entire letter. No longer as a bondservant. In other words, Philemon, you receive him back. For love's sake, you receive him back. No longer as a bondservant but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. This would be the moment that Philemon would sit back in his chair and throw his hands up. I mean, I mean what, what answer is Philemon going to have to that statement? Because what Paul is saying, Philemon, is that Onesimus is no longer just your bondservant. He is now your brother in Christ. You have a responsibility Philemon, to reconcile, regardless of what has happened, regardless of what is in the past, Philemon, based on the love of Christ, you have a responsibility to reconcile with this servant who ran away because he's now your brother. Philemon would have no response to that. I would imagine that when he sits back in his chair, he would have to say, Paul, If Onesimus has come to faith in Christ, then in fact, he is now in the body of Christ. In fact, he is my brother. In fact, I now must respond to him in love and grace. 
bearing the hatchet is difficult because it's going to require something of you. You see, offering forgiveness to someone that has wronged you deeply, there's a cost involved for you. And, and, and you already know what part of it is. Is that the idea that if I offer forgiveness to this person and I accept their apology and I accept their, the fact that they've repented of this, if I do that, it, it could put me in a position to get hurt again. Yeah? I understand that. But there are three aspects to bearing the hatchet, and none of them are easy. First of all, if this person comes to you seeking reconciliation, and we accept that, we accept their apology, we accept their forgiveness, and, and in that moment we move towards the middle to this person who sought us out. And here it is. You can't bring that back up. Within a marriage context, when we get in, a, get in an argument, we, we tend to go back into our memory bank and pull this up and pull this up and pull this up. Even though in each of those situations, we said to our spouse, hey, you're forgiven. Let's move on. It's all done. But in the heat of another battle, all of a sudden it comes up again. And for those of you who've received that, you know how hurtful that is because you thought it was done, right? Well, in this forgiveness mode with this brother or sister in Christ, in this forgiveness mode, what we're doing is we're saying to that person, when we say, I forgive you, what we're saying is we're not going to hold that against you anymore. And that's why I said at the very beginning, it's the love of God that compels us. It's, it's the Holy Spirit living inside of us that enables us to do it. Because I can tell you, in my flesh, I don't have that ability. Because if we're holding on to that grudge, Sure evidence of that is when we go back five, ten years, three months, and we go and bring that back right to the issue we're dealing with today. That's a sure indication, a sure symptom that we're holding on to some stuff that we're going to have to let go of. I can see in your face right now. I can see in your face. Well, Pastor, you don't know what I've been through. It's easy for you to say you've, you've never been hurt like I have. You've never been hurt by a Christian like I have. And that may be true. I, I, don't, I don't know what road you've traveled. I just know that everybody in this room has been hurt. It doesn't change the reality of what God is asking you to do. Not holding it over the other person's head is, is the first step. And oh my goodness, the second one I think is, is equally hard. We, we no longer bring it up to ourselves. You know, we may, we may be able to offer forgiveness to that person, and we may be able to get to a place where we never bring it up again to that person. But on the inside of us, we're still wrestling with that mess. We're still recounting it. We're still wrestling with it. We're still arguing in ourselves with that issue, and we've never moved one step beyond it. And it is eroding away your soul, and you know it is. It's like a cancer. It's like, it's like corrosion that is just eating you up from the inside out. It's because you keep having the same argument over and over and over again with yourself. Oh, I wish I'd have said this. Oh, I wish I'd have done this. I wish I'd have handled it this way. I wish I'd have did all of this. You're having that conversation on the inside of yourself, and it is eroding away every bit of Christian joy 
You go to church over and over again. You sing the songs. And for a little moment in time, in 45 or an hour, 45 minutes to an hour here, you forget about it, right? But something reminds you. And even when that person comes around, you got a smile on your face. Nothing's going on. Everything's good. You're not bringing it up. But on the inside of you, you are assassinating that person over and over again. Can I tell you, that's leading you down a path of hardship and pain. You see, that's not actually forgiveness. You've heard the statement, forgive and forget. Well, the fact of the matter is, is God's got a delete button that He's had to hit many times in my life. Out of His grace and His mercy, He's, he's able to take my wrongs and cast them away. But I'm telling you folks, on the inside of me, it's harder to hit that delete button. I got that. And whether you remember it or not, that's not the issue. If you remember and then you hold it over that person's head, even internally, you've still not gotten to that place where you've let it go. And third, and third, if we're not going to hold it over the person, we're not going to have the conversation with ourselves. And then third, we're not going to have a conversation with anybody else about it because here's the problem. I believe as long as we're having that conversation with ourselves and that's still in our heart, you know what's going to happen eventually, right? We're going to have a conversation with somebody else about it. You know what the Bible calls that? Gossip. Do a little word study. Go through the New Testament. Find where Paul does these places where he lists out these lists of sins. You know, the really bad stuff, right? You know what you'll find among those lists almost every time? Gossip. You see, what's in your heart eventually comes out of your mouth. And eventually, it'll come out to the people around you. And what are we trying to do when we start gossiping about the person who hurt us? We're still in character assassination mode. So in fact, we've never moved beyond the grudge. We're still carrying it. I say again that this is only possible. Only possible. When you've experienced the love and the grace of God. Paul says to Philemon, you're no longer, he's no longer a bondservant, but he's more than that. He's, he's a brother. Verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul says to Philemon, Philemon, if I were to come into Colossae, no doubt you would wrap your arms around me. No doubt you would, you would accept me. And no doubt you would take me into your house. No doubt you would feed me a meal. You'd make a room for me. As a matter of fact, Paul makes that request at the end of the letter. He would expect Philemon to treat him with, with great love. He says to Philemon, he says, Philemon, accept Onesimus back the way you would accept me. That is incredible. I would imagine that Onesimus is really, I mean, Philemon is really getting kind of tense about what Paul is saying because he knows what he's got to do. So not only do we break the ice and we bury the hatchet, the last thing I want to share with you is we begin anew. Now, what, what does it look like to begin anew? Well, if you've forgiven the person through, through God's presence and power inside of you, you have offered forgiveness to that person. You're not recounting it in your head. God has given you freedom. The shackles have fallen off. You've moved on with your life. Well, what does life look like? Well, it doesn't mean that you have to go on vacation with them. Okay, it doesn't mean that you've got to go over to their house and have a meal with them. It just means that you've been able to move on with your life, that you're no longer stressing about what happened in your life. It doesn't mean any of that. It doesn't mean that you've got to be all of a sudden best friends again. It doesn't mean that. It just means that in your life, you're no longer holding it over that person's head. But Paul says to Philemon, hey, Philemon, accept him back in your house 
as you would accept me. And then Paul says something amazing here. He says, verse 18, if he has wronged you at all, and of course he has, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write with this with my own hand, I will repay it. Paul steps in not only as just a reconciler and a catalyst, but Paul steps in and says, look, Onesimus doesn't have anything. I mean, he's, he's been on the run. He's probably impoverished. If something has gone wrong, if, if he did something in your household, if, you, if you've had some kind of financial loss or he broke something in the household, I don't know what it was, but Paul says, I'm willing to repay that to get this thing taken care of. But did you know if you've offended someone, let's say a business deal went bad and you took advantage of your business partner and you walked away with money in your pocket and left that person hurting with all the debt, did you know, Christian brother or sister, that not only do you have a responsibility to seek forgiveness and seek reconciliation, but reconciliation also includes making right whatever the wrong was. We often move past that. We often think about forgiveness as just saying the words, will you forgive me? And the person says yes, and we move on. But if there's some kind of financial loss or some kind of harm that was done that you have the ability to correct, you have a responsibility to correct that. Paul sees that, and Paul says, I'm willing to step in, and I'm willing to help this situation. I'm willing to pay the debt. Paul says the reconciliation is more important the love, the forgiveness is more important than us getting hung up on a money or a loss. I'm willing to take care of that. I'm willing to pay that. Does, does any of this sound remotely familiar? Breaking the eyes. God pursued us. In our fallenness, in our sinful state, in our, in our rebellion, we were shaking our fists in the face of God, and God pursued reconciliation with us. And in that moment, when I came to faith in Christ, you know what God did? God buried His hatchet of wrath that I deserved. Peace. God should have poured His wrath out on me, but because of the reconciliation and my faith and my repentance, admitting to God that I was in my sin and in my own rebellion, that God turned His wrath away from me and adopted me as a son. And what has life been like since? Well, we've got have the opportunity to begin life brand new. In Lebanon in the early 80s, there were these Muslim militias that were going from community to community to city to city and killing any Christian or any Jewish person they could find. And it was getting to genocide levels. And by the way, today, Christians are being killed and martyred all over the globe to genocide levels. But in the 80s, these these militias were going through and they were going into these little communities and these little villages and they would, they would ask the people, are you a Christ follower? And if they said that they were, they were killed on the spot. And Mary was a woman who was running for her life and she was pinned down by one of these Muslim soldiers. He puts the gun in her back while she's laying face down in the road. And he asked her the question, do you follow Christ? And she said, yes. And he says, will you recant? She says, no. He pulls the trigger, shoots her right through the back and walks on. Later on, some of the Muslim militias would come back into town and they would, they would pillage the community, steal what they could steal, but they would also take the bodies and either burn them or bury them in mass graves. And as they were coming back through, they found Mary laying in the street and she wasn't dead. She was still alive. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, 
whoever it was that found her decided to take her and, and, and put her in a hospital or find medical help for her. There's no reason for that to happen, but in that moment they did. So they took Mary, put her in a medical facility, and through many surgeries it became reality that she was going to be paralyzed for the rest of her life. It was a spinal injury. And after months and months and months of trying to recover, and remember this is a third world country, so the, the techniques were not all that great, she ended up being pretty much paralyzed in the majority of her body. I think she had use of maybe one or two hands, but that was it. And in a country that has very little medical facilities or very little attention to people who, was, who have special needs, she was going to be committed to a wheelchair in a facility for the rest of her life. A doctor asked Mary, Mary, what, what do you think about what this man did to you? And without even hesitating, he says, she says, I've already forgiven him of what he did for me or what he did to me and put me in this wheelchair. And the doctor was amazed and he said, how in the world could you come to a place where you forgive a man who was so awful and so mean to you? And this is what she said. And I want you to appreciate the simplicity of this statement. She says, quote, well, I forgave him because God has forgiven me. It is that simple. It really is, isn't it? I know because I've walked enough journey with enough people in this room, I know that some of you have experienced some incredibly deep, painful experiences in your life. I know that. And I know right now you're wrestling with the whole idea of this. But there's a reason why there's a loss of joy and peace. There's a reason why that this idea that Jesus said that you'll have an abundant life, there's a reason why that seems to be foreign from your walk. It's because of this bitterness and resentment that you've been holding on to for years. Maybe you're on the receiving end, or maybe you're the one who caused the pain. Regardless of what side of this you're on, we've got to make a choice today. We've got to make a choice. If you've never come to faith in Christ, your first choice is to experience the love and the grace and mercy of God. And I can tell you right now that if you experience that love and that grace and that mercy, you'll be able to offer forgiveness in places you never thought you'd be able to do it. And secondly, if you're a disciple of Christ, you know, you know what Christ is calling you to do. And the reason He's calling you to do it is because He wants you to experience that abundant life of peace that's just been outside your grasp for so long. Maybe it's going to require breaking the ice. And maybe, maybe it's going to require you to choose to be the one to do that. Father in heaven, I don't want to diminish any of the pain that people in this congregation have been through. I don't want to in any way lessen what they've been through. I don't want anybody to think that that's what's going on here. But yet, Father, it remains that in our life there's been something that's anchoring us down. It's like we've been dragging an anchor through our Christian journey for so long that we've gotten used to it. Father, we've actually gotten used to the grudge. We've gotten used to resentment, and instead of conquering it, we've learned to cope with it. We, we just get by, and we get by by singing a few more songs, maybe reading a few more devotionals. But that thing is still lingering. 
And I believe, Father, it's, it's the wedge that's preventing us from living the life you've called us to live. So, Father, there's some choices that need to be made today. Thankfully, Father, they don't have to be made down front. They can be made right where they are. But nonetheless, we have to make them. Father, for some, it may be accepting the love and grace that God has been wanting to pour out in our life for all these many years. That by salvation, salvation by faith occurs. We cry out to God and we admit our failures. We turn from our wicked ways. We place our faith and belief in a resurrected Lord and Savior. Or maybe, Father, it's the one who's already part of your family and they've made every reason in the world to hold on to this stuff. Yet, Father, you've been calling them. You've been calling them to reconcile. You've promised that we won't have to do it alone, that you'll be with us. You'll give us the words to say. You'll give us the ability to forgive. You'll give us the power to overcome. But yet, Father, it's still a choice that we must make. So, Father, I pray that in these moments of singing, that we would choose wisely. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.